I want to take you to two scriptures as we open up. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is the first one. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I know many of you are familiar with these texts, but I'm not going to assume that all of you know these. So this is 2 Corinthians 11, and I want to show you something important because I think some people who come into nights like this ask questions like, is this even profitable? Why do we do something like this? Are we splitting hairs? Um, is, is it true that, for example, a Mormon person who is sincere, isn't that enough to God? Is, is sincerity the acid test? And I'll, and I'll tell you, it's, it's not. I think there's a lot of sincere people in religions that are way off base. Their sincerity is not enough because if it were enough, the New Testament books that have so much in them about false gospels and false teachings would, wouldn't have been written. So notice what it says. This is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. As Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church, he says, I am afraid, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds and, and the battle for ideas is what Paul tackles in 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 3, when he says, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, which means thought, and every lofty thing raised up against, what your Bible say? The knowledge of God, or you could say the true knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Spiritual warfare is fought in the realm of ideas. Take it to the bank. The enemy is a liar. You have a belt of truth. Why? Because he's, he's a liar. He went into the garden and he lied to our first parents. And Paul, picking up that theme from the fall chapter in Genesis 3, says, I'm afraid that what Satan did to her, he's going to do to you. So be careful. Because Satan is in the deception business and he is crafty. And I don't want your minds, 2 Corinthians eleven three. your minds to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, you need to note that because there is such a thing as another Jesus. I was in a class on Mormonism at Simon Greenleaf. We had a panel. I think Norman Geisler was on the panel. And uh, the statement was made that there's a lot of guys in Mexico named Jesus, but they can't save your soul. A funny way to say it's not the name per se, it's the one behind the name. And there is such a thing as another Jesus, whom we have not preached, says Paul, a different spirit, which you have not received, and notice, a different gospel. So right there in verse 4, there's another Jesus, there's a different spirit, there's a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully, or you put up with it. And sometimes the way it's rendered is, I'm shocked that you're putting up with this. You shouldn't be putting up with this. Down to verse 13, same chapter. For such men, these who are coming into the church are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, and he does have them, and they are human, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. So there are people who name the name of Jesus, but what they do is pour a completely different definition into that name. When you say Jesus, you mean second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son. They don't mean that. When you say the gospel, you have one thing in mind, they have something entirely different in mind. So just because someone comes to your door or comes across your life in some way and uses the terminology of the Christian church, it doesn't mean that they're pouring the same meanings into those terms. So it's very important when you are talking with someone in a cult that you define your terms. What do you mean by that? When you say Jesus, what do you mean? And you could even, on solid ground, based upon what we just read, say, which Jesus are you talking about? And that confuses people. What do you mean, which Jesus am I talking about? Well, you could say, are you talking about the Jesus of, you know, Mormonism? Are you talking about the Jesus? There's a Jesus in witchcraft. There's, there's a Jesus in, of Islam. There's, there's a Jesus in just about everything. 
But it all depends on how he is defined. Jesus asked the, the most important question. Go to Galatians, just the next book to your right, when he said, who do you say that I am? That question is immensely important. Who do you say that I am? And Peter got the revelation from heaven. We won't go there tonight, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as Paul gives us a little bit more detail about the nature of some of what was going on at his time, he says these words to the Galatian church in Galatians 1.6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for, here it is again, a different gospel, which is really not another. It's not legit. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort, and this does happen, the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Strongest Greek word that Paul could have used. Let him be under the curse of God. And just in case you missed it, as we have said before, verse 9, so I say again now, if any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which you, re you received, let him be accursed. Keep reading. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And then Paul says, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? I think the most loving thing to do is to speak the truth, but the, the truth does need to be spoken in love with the right motivation. As an early Christian you know, who studied apologetics, my main motivation, I have to admit, was to win an argument. But I, I, I want to win a soul. So sometimes that takes patience and chiseling away and asking questions and listening to someone's views and how they arrive there. And sometimes you find out that there are many more layers than you may have anticipated. For example, you could run into somebody who has many family members that go back to Brigham Young or Joseph Smith. You could have somebody who had a, a dear family member who, who supported them or whatever. There, there's all kinds of different aspects. It's not, as I mentioned earlier, just a doctrinal issue. Uh, it, goes, it goes much deeper than that uh, in many cases. And so tonight we deal with the, the Mormon church. Uh, I'm going to take this as Holy Spirit-led that uh, we had a uh, wonderful lady who's part of our fellowship, Linda French, come up to me. Linda, I'm going to ask you to come up to the front. I know this is maybe a little scary for her, but Linda, make your way up. Um, I'm going to grab a microphone here. And she came up to me and shared that she had come out of the church, and I, oh, I was hoping she didn't run away. And she's going to come up with her dog. You're going to come up with your dog? Okay. What's your dog's name, by the way? Callie. Callie? See if that's on. Hello. Okay, there we go. Linda, come over here. Thanks for doing this. I know I put, I put you on the spot, uh, but I'm pretty good at it, so okay. it's kind of what I do. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, so put that up a little closer. So, okay. so I, I just, I thought it was important for people to understand um, your, your experience, and what you shared with me, I think, is an important aspect of this. So just uh, tell us a little bit about how you encountered the, the Mormon church and then what happened. Okay. Um, I moved to California from Ohio, running away from a violent marriage. And I came with three kids, and I moved into a little house next to another lady with three kids. And we became fast friends. And she invited me to come to her ward. That's the church from the Mormons. They have wards and branches are the smaller ones. And um, I went to church. And from that point on, I can't tell you how um, comforted I was by the Mormon people. Uh, they immediately came to my house and made sure everything was okay in it. They provided food for my kids. Um, my one daughter ended up in the hospital and never spent one hour alone. They stayed with her day and night. 
I was just overwhelmed with the love that I felt from the people, and I love the Mormon people. Um, I was so excited about it that when I was asked if I wanted to become a Mormon, because I had no church background, I, I grew up loving horses, and that's all I did. And um, I, of course, jumped and said, yes, I want to become a Mormon. And basically, I was told that to become a Mormon, I had to be baptized into the church. And baptism sounded good to me. I'd heard that word before. And um, so I went through the classes, and I was baptized into the Mormon church. And I wanted then to learn more and to, anyway, long story short, I ended up going through many interviews and I ended up being okay to go through the temple. Um, I've gone through Mesa, Oakland and, and uh, LA. And um, in the temple, I learned that the only way you could go to heaven was to be a Mormon. And so to be a Mormon, we had to go through genealogies and we had to be baptized for our relatives who had died so they had the opportunity to be able to accept or reject that baptism. So in Baptism for the Dead, it's a proxy baptism. You yes. get baptized on behalf of dead yes. relatives or whomever. Or Could whomever. be even former presidents or something. Yeah. And the, the teaching is, is that as you are baptized in that person's name, mm -hmm. that will afford them a chance to hear the Mormon gospel in the afterlife. Yes, and accept or reject that. I remember, they have uh, the opportunity to reject it if they want to. Yeah, so they, can still, they still have free will there. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember one time I was talking to a Mormon, and he said, oh, we did hundreds of baptisms over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. But what I, what I then found out was that there, it was one person continually being baptized mm -hmm. over and over again for a bunch of dead people. And so mm -hmm. that was one, two, three. Yeah. And so it wasn't as impressive anymore when you find out what that's about. Well, once you go to the temple, you wear uh, garments uh, on your body that, that are to protect you. And you'll hear many, many stories about garments if you get into that. Um, Anyway, the more I studied, the more questions I had. And the biggest question I had was, well, first of all, they tell you that they believe in the Bible as long as it is translated correctly. And I had a Bible at home, and I was reading the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and all the different books. But the thing that kept stumping me was that in the Bible, Jesus said that he was the only way. And um, that's not what I had been baptized into. I wasn't baptized into Jesus. I was baptized into the Mormon church. So I began to question. And the more I questioned, the more difficult things became. And it was really hard because these people had loved me and taken care of me. And um, I finally came to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't continue because I just, I just couldn't accept that all the Christians that I knew who were also loving were going to go to hell because they hadn't been baptized into the Mormon church. Mm. How long were you in the Mormon church? About 10 years. And uh, so you got out how many years ago now? I, I told you 20-some. It's actually about 36. 36 years ago yeah. you left the church. And uh, after, you, after you left the Mormon church, um, did you become a Christian right away? I was still searching, and I got into all kinds of trouble. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we've heard those stories, too. Yeah. yeah. So, But eventually you made your way, I would assume, into yes. a church and heard the gospel and, yes, and trusted accepted Christ. Jesus. And you said something to me in the courtyard that I, I thought was very poignant. You said, they had loved me so well, that's kind of what made it dangerous, is that exactly. their love was beautiful. They took care of you. They, you said you wouldn't have made it without the Mormon church no, as a I single mom. Mm -mm. And so you were, you were in a desperate 
situation, they, they minister to you probably better than we would have. Well, and my, my hope, I guess, is I love the Mormon people, and, but I would say that 70% of the people in the Mormon church have no idea what the actual um, things behind a church That's are. like a lot of Christians, but we won't yeah. go there. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're there, they're doing the works, they're loving one another. Um, mm. And you said something that, that I really agree with, the terminology. Yes. Um, the terminology is different. I mean, words that we say mean different things. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. Uh, I found that out, too. Linda, I really appreciate oh. you coming up here with Callie as well. Thank you. <laughs> God bless you. We have uh, a radio program now called Walk in Truth, and we, we were part of a launch uh, in Calvary Chapel, Cedar City, Utah. Uh, they, uh, the church bought a radio station. It was a, it was a step of faith, and so they were looking for people to come on and be one of the broadcasters. And so we launched with them. When they launched the radio station, we launched, uh, it was Living Truth Radio at the time, now Walking Truth. And they put us in the 6.30 a.m. morning drive slot. And we've been there ever since. It's been many years now. And so we took a couple motorcycle rides to Cedar City, Utah. And uh, there was a Sunday when I, I was asked to preach at the church, at the Calvary Chapel. And so we were around town, and this is going to shock some of you guys, but I was in a frozen yogurt place. I know, this is shocking. I, I normally don't go to such establishments. But anyway, but we, but we were talking to uh, a young lady. She lived in a neighborhood. It's very dominated by Mormons, a tough mission field. And she said, on my right are family members who are Mormons. On my left are family members that are Mormons. And she says, I get it from both sides. And she, and she said, I don't even believe what they believe, but I go every Sunday because there's so much pressure to conform. So I went into the church on Sunday, and uh, I felt like the Lord was leading me to preach on Luke 15 on the prodigal son. And so I preached the message, and I gave an altar call. And lo and behold, a young lady, nicely dressed, with two little boys in suits. They, they were yay high. They, they looked like they were maybe three, four years old. Came walking forward and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And she told me that that morning, the Lord had nudged her heart to go to a different church. And she said she began looking and she found this church. And this is the only time I ever spoke in the church. Anyway, so she opened her heart to Christ and I had some of the ladies from the church swoop in and begin to you know minister to her and get her information. But... She told me that the church she didn't go to that morning, guess what, it was the Mormon church. And apparently she and her husband had had a little disagreement and she went elsewhere. Well, I asked the church later, I followed up, and they told me that she went back to the Mormon church. Now, do I believe that she was born again? She, she did all the things that we would normally take somebody through. So that's, that's between her and the Lord. But I'll say this. There's a lot of pressure. And when I was talking to this young lady, um, she shared with me that she's under so much pressure to do all these things as a mom and to, to have this smile all the time and live up to these standards. And get this, imagine trying to do, if you were here this morning, James 1 verses 19 through 21 without the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember David Hawking saying that he was in the headquarters in Salt Lake City and he, for him, it was a lot of plastic smiles. It was a lot of people trying to be religious. I'm not saying that they're not sincere, but if they're not, if they don't know the Lord, they lack the power of the Holy Spirit. What a frustrating experience it must be to try to live up to these standards without the power of God. So the story of Mormonism, and obviously I can only touch on um, a lot of things that I'd like to hit tonight, is this. And I took you to Galatians 1, because there's a similarity in a couple of religions that you can think of. Uh, think of Islam and Mormonism. Both started with some sort of angelic visitation. At least this is the alleged story. And Joseph Smith um, said he got a visitation from the angel, angel Moroni. Or if you want to say Moroni, that's the Italian. So he may have been Italian, I don't know. Just kidding. The angel Moroni. And he was supposed to be an ancient warrior in Israel, 
who had died, and that's problematic as well, that he died and then he came back as an angel. That's not who we believe angels are. But the original issue with uh, Joseph Smith is he went out into the woods and he, he asked God which of the religions was correct. And this is in the 1800s and a lot of people were asking questions and there, was, there, was, there were revivals going on. And he said that he got an appearance of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who told him in the woods, he, I think he's 14 at the time, that all the religions were wrong all their professors were corrupt. All of their creeds were abominable. And so Joseph Smith says that no less than God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, has anybody seen God the Father at any time? But he claims that he saw these personages and they told him that all the religions are wrong. And so in essence, the Mormon church teaches that the gospel was lost at the end of the first century with basically the death of the last apostle. And for some 1,700 years, the gospel was lost until it was restored by Joseph Smith. And so when the Mormon church is called the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, what Joseph believes that he did was restore a lost gospel. Now think about it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church, right? But Joseph claims in this vision that the gospel was lost for some 1,700 years. So think of from the end of the first century to the early 1800s. Think of how many saints that you could name right now in church history existed and lived during those times. Just think about major segments of church history. Apparently, none of them knew the true gospel. The great apologists, uh, the great reformers, uh, they, none of them knew the gospel. It wasn't until Joseph Smith as a teenager in the woods got this appearance of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that you know, the gospel was restored. And so the Mormon church teaches that it has the restored gospel. And by the way, Brigham Young said that no one's going to get into heaven without the permission of Joseph Smith Jr. Now, I thought Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But Mormon, the second leader of the Mormon church, says Joseph Smith's permission is now required. So he got this vision a little bit later. Uh, the angel Moroni allegedly appears at the quaking Smith's bedside no less than three times in the same night is how the story goes. And he was told where he could find some golden plates in upstate New York. He was born in Vermont, but his family moved to Palmyra, New York. And so he was told that on the hill Camorra in upstate New York, he would find these golden plates. And they, they would, uh, he would be able to dig them up. Now, we do know that from people who lived around the Smith family and from uh, sources that we have that uh, Joseph's dad and Joseph him, himself were treasure diggers or treasure hunters. And apparently he came up with all kinds of stories and he was kind of a shyster and he was into peep stones, which is a form of the occult. And they were treasure diggers. So think about the story of the Mormon church. Golden plates that needed to be dug up, that told this ancient story of these ancient peoples. And so later on, some years later, Joseph uh, goes to the hill Cumorah, and he digs up these golden plates. And on it, he translates from what's on the plates, the Book of Mormon. And so it tells the story of some peoples who uh, went from Israel to the Americas and basically the claim of the Mormon church has been the American Indians are related to the Jewish people who got on ships and some of them made their way to the Americas. Now that whole concept has been debunked by DNA evidence. It's been interesting. They've been testing uh, the tribes, the American Indian tribes, to see if there's any Hebrew slash Jewish blood in them. There ain't a smidge of it. There's absolutely no DNA evidence. There's no archaeological evidence for the story of the Book of Mormon. Yet Joseph said he 
found the plates and threw some magical spectacles. And the plates, by the way, were written in um, reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. He had some magical spectacles and he translated the Book of Mormon, which tells this story. And so there's something like 11 people who claim to see the golden plates. And then some of the people who claim to see the plates said they saw them with the eye of faith. Translation, they didn't see them. <laughs> but they saw them with the eye of faith. And so interestingly enough, way back in the day, we're talking about now the, the, moving into the mid-1800s, there weren't a whole lot of scholars who knew who were Egyptologists. So when they began to study Joseph's translation of another book, which I may not have time to get into, but another papyrus scroll that he had purchased and he had uh, translated, they began to examine his work. And so they were able to get a hold of the scroll. This is uh, from the book of Abraham. They were able to look at an Egyptian symbol and see what Joseph did to translate the symbol. And so, for example, if it was a symbol that meant water in Egyptian... An Egyptologist, expert in the language, could say, well, that symbol means water. And then Joseph would write a whole sentence about that symbol that had nothing to do with what it meant. So the Mormon church says, oh, well, Joseph wasn't translating the word as it was meant in the original language. His was a spiritual translation. Says so this is what they say. So if... if for example, if you were an expert in Hebrew and someone claimed to translate a Hebrew document and you're an expert and you, you looked at it and you said, okay, this, this word in Hebrew means God. And someone you know, wrote a sentence that had nothing to do. They wrote a sentence about baseball. <laughs> you would say, uh, I don't think they know Hebrew because that symbol, that, those letters mean God, not something about baseball. But then the person would say, oh, oh I'm not sure you knew this, but... Not, he's not actually translating the language. He's going deeper than the actual language. It's a spiritual translation. Now, let me ask you, just by way of debate or logic, how do you reason with someone like that? So I took this evidence. Uh, there's a book that I got from a man who came out of the Mormon church by his own hand upon papyrus. It's written by Charles Larson. He's got pictures of the papyrus scroll that they discovered uh, in a... Uh, there was a fire, but they, they were able to save the, the scroll. And the evidence is all in here. So I gave, it, I gave this to a Mormon bishop who I was dialoguing with, and he happened to be my boss. He was the VP of sales in our company. And we had some really friendly but deep debates. And I, I showed him all this evidence, and there was no way to get out of it. And so uh, one day I rang his doorbell. He told me he had the book, and he had read through it. And he wanted to give me the book back. And I was heading to a slow-pitch softball game, and he was seated at the table having dinner with some friends and family. He goes, here's the book. And I said, what did you think of it? And he said, not much. And I said, why not? And he said, well, that guy's an apostate. He, he left the Mormon church. He's an apostate. I said, but what did you think of the substance of his argument and the content of his argument? He said, well, if he's right, then Joseph Smith is a false prophet. And I went, right. And if Joseph Smith is a false prophet, now this is him speaking, then the Mormon church is false. And I went, right. <laughs> and if the Mormon church is false, everything that I believe is false too. Right. <laughs> and then he said these words to me. But even if it's not true, I'm not going to be anything but a Mormon. And I went, oh. And he handed me the book. And I went to my slow-pitch softball game. Because there was nothing else to talk about. And that's why I say to you, and, and this man, I think many generations going back to the founders of the church, this is a very layered issue. It wasn't all doctrinal for him. I thought I had won the day. I found this great resource. These were open and shut Arguments, hey, he's got to see the light now, and even and he admitted everything. I was like, right, yeah, right, right. But it didn't matter. So that, that's what you have to understand. That for some people, this is not always about some soul issue, although it should be, because Jesus said, What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits what? His soul. 
And I do think that there are a lot of people in the Mormon church that are just not aware. Now, because of, for the sake of time, and because I do want to bring up um, the guys that are going to answer some questions, I, I just want to sketch some things for you. Uh, number one, the God of Mormonism is not the God of the Bible because the God of Mormonism progresses. He was once a man. The Mormon universe is not just illogical, it can't work. Here's why. Because the Mormons believe that gods go back in an infinite regress. We know the evidence from science is that the universe had a beginning. Whatever people are arguing for, we know it's God. Some people say it's the Big Bang. But we know all the science says that there was, there was a beginning. Well, the Mormon gods just keep going back in infinite regress. And so how do you get to a first cause in a, in a Mormon worldview? You can't. And they believe that if they are faithful to, I think it's the 20 laws and ordinances of the Mormon church, including a two-year mission and your marriage being sealed in the temple and so forth, then you have a chance to be exalted. And they don't talk about this with a lot of people, but I have found in a lot of dialogue, they don't want to go here, but here's what the teaching is, that when you get exalted, you become the God of your own planet. And I, and I asked a Mormon, does that mean that you're going to be worshipped? Yeah, I think so. Now think about it. Think about religions that teach you're going to end up somewhere where all you're going to be waited on or taken care of, or you're going to, you, you know, people are going to be at your beck and call. I mean, this is the oldest lie in the book. Satan said to our first parents, God knows in the day you eat of it, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Same lie, as Walter Martin put it, same source, and sadly, same destiny. And this is the implications of a false movement. Today, the statistics I just looked up, there's 16 million Mormons on the planet. Just think about that number for a second. 16 million people. I think they have close to 60,000 full-time missionaries. By the way, the missionaries that you run into uh, in your neighborhood, they're usually not, they're from somewhere else. They get put on assignment in a local area and they get a certain amount of training, but most of them are, what, 18 to 20 or something like that? They have not gotten a lot of training. And I've had some Mormons who I've interacted with and showed them emphatic proof that there's one God. The Bible's emphatic about this. Just basically try to brush it aside, and they, they don't know how to get out of it. And, and I will say to them, you know what? From the verses I showed you, I just showed you in Isaiah, you're not going to become a God. You're not. You're not going to make it, man. There's only one God. And the, the normal response is one of two things. Either one, oh, well, when we're, ta we're talking about a different type of exaltation. No, I don't think I'm going to be exactly like God, but uh, maybe I'll be a junior God or something like that. Or they'll say the verses that you're showing them in the Bible, maybe they weren't correctly translated. Now, in uh, Mormonism, they have four sacred books. They have the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon. By the way, the Book of Mormon doesn't teach Mormonism. That may sound weird to you, but it doesn't. Most of their strange doctrines come from the Doctrine and Covenants or the public discourses of their leaders. And this is where they say that Jesus was born in the same way that everybody else is born. And they basically deny the virgin birth. And it's, it borders on blasphemy if it's not blasphemy. They kind of, sometimes they don't say it as directly as, you know, as, as uh, but we know what they're implying is the basic idea. They say that Jesus atoned for sin or at least gave the opportunity for people to be saved in the Garden of Gethsemane, not on the cross. So when he when Luke says he shed, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. By the way, there's some people that don't believe that's literal. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that for another time. They believe that Gethsemane was the place that an opportunity was given for salvation. But you can't be saved by grace alone. 
you have to add your good works to it. And in fact, there's a, a dark history in Mormonism of what they call righteous slayings, where if they believe that someone sinned beyond the blood of Christ, which is impossible, by the way, he's a, he's, his blood can atone for every sin, the worst of them, right? They would righteously kill somebody to help that, pe- that person help them with paying for their sins with their own blood. Joseph Smith uh, rattled the cages of many people. He ended up in Nauvoo, and he claimed to be the mayor, and he had a militia, and uh, he, he claimed to be, I think at one point, uh, either the mayor or the governor. He had a, a militia of thousands of men. He had a huge following. There were skirmishes where people were killed on both sides, and Joseph Smith um, became a polygamist. He was marrying teenagers. He was taking other men's wives and marrying them and claiming that he had the authority as the prophet to do so. And he was married, to our knowledge, I think over 30 times. When the United States put pressure on him for polygamy uh, and said, you're going to basically be kicked out, uh, then he divorced all of his wives so that he he could retain his citizenship. And so he was a bit of a scoundrel, to say the least. Uh, he took people's wives. He, had a, he, had, he was a kind of a power-mongering guy. He seemed to be dabbling in the occult. And he ended up in a prison in Carthage, Illinois. And uh, his brother was in there and a couple other people. And he had riled up the people so much so by the polygamy, by the false teachings, that you know, men will become gods. He, he had shut down a, uh, and destroyed a printing press at uh, printed a negative article about him and he ended up in a prison cell and he had called for his militia and uh, his militia apparently was on their way and there were citizens of the town that rushed the prison and began to shoot and fire shots into the prison cell where he and his brother were. His brother was hit in the face by a bullet and sadly uh, he perished and Joseph Smith, someone had snuck a revolver in and he began to fire back and there was a gun battle. And Joseph Smith ran to the window. This is what the history says. He ran to the window and he was shot. I think he was shot in the hip and then he got shot in the, uh, under his heart and then in the collarbone. And he was at the window and he fell two stories and then they shot him again and they killed Joseph Smith. And interestingly enough, Joseph Smith said he is, he, one month before this happened, and I believe if my dates are correct, it happened in 1844, He was 39 years old. A month before this happened, he said that no one had ever held a group of people together like him, not even Jesus Christ. And one month later, he was shot and killed. Now, the Mormon church says that Joseph Smith is a martyr based upon what happened. I'll leave that up to you if you want to call him a martyr. He was in a prison. What what those people did you could say it was wrong, but, but Joseph was shooting back. So it was, a, it was a gun battle. And he was killed. And that's the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And a lot of people, and I just gave you kind of the, the surface of the history. So, that, so I'm going to allow the questions to kind of dictate the rest of our time. And uh, I'm going to ask our panel members to come up. Joe Kelly and Logan, come on up. You have questions? Okay, question number one. And hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Linda, hi. thank you for coming up here and sharing. Thank you, Linda, we appreciate that. Can you guys come a little bit closer? Because we're, we're on the camera there. And we want to see your pretty faces. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Joe. Love Where are these original plates today? Anybody know where the uh, golden plates are? I think they claim the uh, Angel Moroni took them back. Yeah, they, they are not, they've disappeared. So you can't, you can't access them. There's no way to, to see them. 
um, you know, conveniently. So, okay. The Mormon Mormon Urim and Thummim was like a hat and some stones and glasses, and obviously crazy. But the union, the Urim and the Thummim, are mentioned in Scripture. What was it? So the Urim and the Thummim were uh, part of the high priestly garb on the plate of the high priest. And there's a there's a a Jewish teaching that said that they would illuminate when the high priest was looking to get answers from God and that somehow light would re- reflect on the, the stones is the idea. So you could say, you know, the peep stones are occultic, but the Mormon church did claim that Joseph, I think, used the Urim and the Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon. That's false. He did not. And there's a whole mystery about the Urim, Urim and the Thummim. So um, anyway, once Joseph Smith has died, who is then in charge of deciding who goes to heaven? Was this addressed in the early Mormon doctrines? I don't think it was addressed at all. And, and you know, that's, that's one of the issues with Mormonism is you begin with a story, you have this narrative, and then you have to fill in and cover your tracks, so to speak. Yeah. So as you were talking, you were talking about the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, King James Version only of the Bible, and then the actually uh, the proclamations from the prophets. Um, that's also viewed as scripture yes. in Mormonism. So they don't have a closed canon like we do. Yes. We, have, we have, you know, 66 books. Yes. It's closed. There's no more uh, revelation, special revelation that's written that would be added to the scriptures but every single prophet in Mormonism is a seer of God. Yes. And so when they speak, they can speak and add to. Or so, change. Or which, change. Which in the case of uh, African-American folks, uh, the African-Americans, right. they said, had the curse of Cain. And uh, they were marked with black skin. This is, this is Mormon doctrine. And uh, they said that the, the, a black person could not inherit the priesthood. And then in, I think it was in the 70s, the 70s, when there was a lot of pressure, there's the whole civil rights movement and so forth, um, they were feeling pressure from society. And the bat phone rang. And all of a sudden, the priesthood was opened up to black people. And so that's something in the history of Mormonism that people don't often talk about. But he, he's a god who, the false god of Mormonism, who can change his mind. Where's Joseph Smith now? I... I think Justice Smith is in a hot place, personally. But, but they would say he's still alive. They would say he's still alive somewhere and giving the, still has the authority to, uh, to allow this to occur. Well, see, and that doesn't, and Pastor, that doesn't make sense. Because a, a, a Mormon who um, has followed the teachings of the church, has uh, had the celestial marriage, has been... Uh, baptized, has been, had hands laid on by a Melchizedek priest, etc., has gone through everything they need to, and they reach the highest level of heaven, the celestial level, they then, speaking of a man with his wife, become their gods, right, and populate their own planet. So wouldn't Joseph Smith, therefore, um, when his wife died, or one of his wives, been able to populate his own planet. And they do say that polygamy would be practiced in the afterlife. So you could have more than one planet, I would assume. Yes. And uh, I think Joseph Smith even believed that there were Quakers on the moon, but uh, that's another story. One thing, um, don't be surprised when you're talking to Mormons. I've been really blessed over the last few months to dialogue with three, and three four guys consistently. And don't be surprised if they consistently try to take the conversation away from Joseph Smith. And they do that. You know, the other day I was meeting with them, and, you know, just, just an example of what was said was, you know, I know you, you think Joseph Smith is important, but, well, I mean, if you think of a house of cards, the whole thing rests on him, all of it. I mean, if what he said wasn't true, it all falls apart. So don't be surprised if they try to conveniently... You know, we're trying to reach them, but, but he's the, the cornerstone that it rests on. Don't be surprised if they steer away. One of the teachings of the Mormon church you made me think of was uh, they believe that a husband 
uh, must call his wife forth to the resurrection. And he has a special code name for her that only he knows and she doesn't. So in order, and by the way, in Mormonism, now this is, this is the teaching of the Mormon church, women are eternally pregnant. And your husband, so don't burn the toast, ladies. Your husband calls you out of the grave by a special code name that only he knows. Wow, that's a lot of power. Anyway, what is it about the Mormon church that attracts people, and what can the Christian church do to incorporate that into our church? What a great question. What they do, I think, like you can see what Linda went mm-hmm. through, right? Uh, they could be, they're very family-oriented, very loving. Very hospitable. Very hospitable. Great neighbors. Yeah, I mean, all of that. Uh, I, I think one thing we do have to say also, you know, when we go out to the, the free speech areas, I mean, without fail, we see a Jehovah's Witness every single place. And I think we have to take some responsibility and say that we're just not doing our job a lot of times. The Christians need to be out there engaging people, and I think that's what it comes down to. Are we as committed as them? I think that's a huge thing. I think that's a huge thing, and I also think, Logan, and I think you're really great at this, that speaking the truth in love and loving people and patiently reasoning with them is is extremely important. You know, uh, Pastor, real quick, when you think about it... um, Can you come up here so I don't have to turn and look at you? Our our faith is a... a, we're, We're saved by grace. Amen? Amen. Every other false system is some type of works system. In other words, you're having to earn your, your uh, salvation, so to speak. So part of the answer, why are they effective? Why are the cults effective? Part of their uh, role to become saved is to evangelize. They are earning their future. They are earning their salvation through what they're doing. And I think that's an important point because the motivation then is not necessarily right. what we would hope would be compassion and, hey, I really want to get you right with God. It, it, you know, the question we've taught on Jehovah's Witnesses is when the witness comes to your door, I think you could legitimately ask, are you here for me or for you? Are you here to check a list that you went to a certain amount of doors and I'm just one of those. And as soon as I begin to dialogue with you and you come to the quick conclusion that I know some stuff, have you watched how quickly they leave? A lot of them, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't want to talk to you anymore. So is it really about truth or is it about just you just needed another door to check off? So I think that's extremely important. Why, do, why did so many people believe Joseph Smith? What made him so credible? Especially uh, if he claimed this as a child, or, you know, he began to really do this in his 20s. Uh, and, of course, he died at 39, so it was a, you know, kind of, he, he did die young. I don't know if he came across credible, but I think there's a lot of people who are not very discerning, wouldn't you say? I, I think so, yeah, definitely. I mean, from the beginning, he even, if you go on, one of their holy books is The Pearl of Great Price. So if you go on LDS.org, um, under the Pearl of Great Price, it has the history of, of the church defined by Joseph Smith. And he even lays it out in there that he was right away. He had, you know, uh, ministers, all kinds of people just came right against them. Um, but I do think a lot of people aren't discerning, definitely. The Mormon church did start with six people. And then uh, slowly through time, then he, he ended up, he quickly had like 300 and then it, it grew from I, there. I think there's some parallels in Islam with, you know, Muhammad. There was not an initial explosion in growth, and it wasn't until after Joseph Smith died, it wasn't until after Muhammad died, that, and, and, and removing himself from the location where it began, where there's an explosion. And if you talk to church historians, the whole upper New York, they call it the burned over district, because in the 1800s there was an awful lot of tent meetings, so you had revivals all the time. So people were so conditioned on these revivals, uh, you know, the, the uh, messages of the hell, brimstone, and fire. You have numerous cults that came out of that area, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, another yeah, one. All around that time. All around that Seventh time. Seventh-day Adventism became and so, big. Seventh-day Adventist. And so you had a, it was a different 
and unique message, and I think that played, mm -hmm. played into it as well. One thing I know you and I were talking about, Pastor Michael, was, and this is a, a foundational thing for Mormons, but it, it gets broad because we can apply it to Christians and other religions, and that comes down to a personal experience. So in the, in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Moroni, Moroni chapter 10, Moroni 10, 3 and 4, this is a key section. It all comes down to this for them, um, you know, independently of the evidence. You know, what would it take for, and I've asked these questions, what would it take for you to believe Joseph Smith wasn't who he claimed to be? Nothing, because I have a witness. You know, what would it mean for you if Joseph Smith wasn't who he claimed to be? Well, I don't think it would mean anything, because I have a witness. Moroni chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, talks about asking the things that you're reading if they are true. And if they are true, you will receive a confirmation, which they call a burning in the bosom. You know what's ironic about that? It actually says in Moroni 10, verses 3, I think it's 3 through 5, yep. that it, you'll actually get the witness if it's not true. That's right. right. <laughs> so could it be that every time a Mormon prays and gets the burning in the bosom, it's affirmation that it's not true? Right. That, <laughs> I, I presented that to them too, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I know we were talking about, you know, what this kind of says. It really gets down into this issue of some kind of personal experience, whatever that is, because it's bettered me in some way, equals God. So, so you could show someone, in other words, the facts uh, you show them a, a simple argument, and they see that their religion is contradicted by Scripture, which is the oldest revelation. And then you say, what are you going to do with that? And they say, well, I prayed about the Book of Mormon, and I got a burning in the bosom. Or I prayed about Mormonism, and I got this witness. And so it's hard to argue with an experience. And that's why you have to say, you know, and th this is, you may see this as harsh, but you could say maybe the devil answered your prayer. Or maybe you had a bad taco. I mean, we just had tacos. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the burning in your bosom actually is, but, but I'm showing you the truth. And, and so, and it's not just the people in Mormonism that, are, that appeal to this kind of stuff. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's in a subjective yes. method. It's a subjective epistemology. Epistemology, how do you know something is true? If it's simply based on because you feel it or think it, then everybody's subjective testimony is equally valid. And so why does the Mormon come to my door if I can say to him at my door, I prayed too and had that same burning in the bosom, but it wasn't for Mormonism. It was for living truth. Now what do we do when we're staring at each other? Hey, why don't we look at the historical facts and let, mm -hmm. let the facts determine truth? Are you willing to do that? Do you think there is a parallel between Joseph Smith's encounter in the woods and the occult? I think so. I think that it's not necessarily the case that every false religion is demonically inspired. But I'll tell you, based upon the opening verses we read tonight, 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 1, there's no doubt that the devil moves in these realms. And 1 Timothy 4.1 says there's doctrines of demons. A de demonically inspired false doctrine. And how do you think the devil would package that? In amazing light. It would look good. It would look authentic. Otherwise, no one would be duped by it. No one would be fooled by it. And so I do think that uh, certainly, and, and what we have heard from Joseph Smith with the treasure hunting and dabbling in the occult is that he probably had opened him up, himself up to this. What I thought was, was interesting, too, is I was reading in, his, in the Pearl of Great Price and the, the history by Joseph Smith. Interestingly enough, it's hard to tell because the history's been changed so much, even the earliest vision accounts, it's hard to tell what's genuine. But even the words that are supposedly from him say that when he was in the woods, he described a very, I think he said it was actual physical darkness that came around him. And then soon after that, you know, light kind of took that out. But I just thought that was interesting that he, by his own words, described that. What do Mormons believe about heaven? I've heard that they believe that they'll each have their own planets. Yeah, we, we take a crack at that. That's what, that's what we talked about. If, if you attain, in Mormonism, there's three levels of afterlife in addition to hell or perdition, uh, which is reserved for Satan, demons, and the worst of the worst. Um, there is the uh, telestial level, which are for, is for non-Mormons 
who also probably are not very good people. And that's what that baptism of the dead is for. It gives them a second chance. Uh, so they're offered that opportunity to become Mormon in the afterlife. Then there's the terrestrial, which is the middle ground. Good humans like uh, you and I, hopefully, um, and maybe uh, Mormons who um, didn't go through all the proper uh, channels to reach the celestial level, which is the highest. So celestial is the highest. Those are the ones that we talked about. Went through all the proper channels, did the temple uh, ceremonies, the baptisms, the marriages, and all of that. And then they're the ones that end up populating, becoming gods themselves. Mm -hmm. And then if you end up in hell, you got to be kind of the worst of the worst, or if you spoke out against the Mormon church. And yeah, I, and an I'm apostate, not, right. Yeah, you're an apostate. Or uh, Next one did says... That, did that answer that, by the way? I think so. They'll each have their own planet. We, yeah, we answered that. Um, why do they not use a cross? My understanding of that um, is they originally believed, again, getting back to the history being changed, they did originally believe that, and they just changed it to it wasn't a cross. Now so. they say that the primary atonement, which affords simply an opportunity to be saved, because remember, they believe you, you got to have your good works in there, happened in the Garden in of the Gethsemane, garden. and I think they say it was completed on the cross, but they, they put a big emphasis on the Garden of Gethsemane. How do Mormons worship or do they worship? Anybody, anybody in here been to a, a Mormon other than Linda back here? Um, so w were there hymns and uh, I know they talk a lot about testimonies and the church. Some traditional hymns as well. Yeah, I, I came across the song to Joseph Smith and made the hair of my body stand up. Okay, so testimonies is what the church has done for me, and then they split off male and female into kind of a class thing and then try to take care of some church stuff. Okay, does the Mormon church own Coca-Cola? <laughs> well, you know, there is such a thing as the word of wisdom in the Mormon church, which basically is what you should not do as a Mormon. And I do believe that caffeine and smoking cigarettes and even alcohol, I believe, is part of that. Yep. But then, did uh, the Mormon church get ownership in Coca-Cola? I don't know. I'm trying to remember. They may I'm have. Not sure. And if they did, um, that's when the bat phone rings, usually. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> anyway. Uh, in fact, I, do, I think I remember talking to a Mormon who did drink soda from time to time, and he had, he had some reason for it. What is the secret oath? There it's are, a secret. There are... <laughs> there are <laughs> There are some connections to Freemasonry and Mormonism. Um, so they do, they do take oaths. In fact, uh, people went in and did video of uh, some of the, the classes in the temple and stuff, and they went in there with a, a camera, and, and they, they, there are some oaths that they take, and it's like if I do this and they do this, I'll slash my throat, and there's some kind of weird oath-taking there, there, is a, there is a link between Mormonism and uh, Masons and things like that and secret oaths and handshakes. And, but, again, it's all secret. So The temple in Utah has many Freemason symbols. Next question. Around the top, what is the connection? I think it goes back to Joseph Smith. I mean, he himself was involved in Freemasonry. So... Um, some sources would say that very soon, within months after he was going to some of these masonry events, he would actually adopt their own rituals and put those into the temples. And I believe that's where the undergarments came from. Uh, that, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, because they had, yeah. they had the symbols on them and, and so forth. Okay. What does a Mormon believe after they are... What does a Mormon believe happens if they are not exalted? We, we touched on that with the levels of heaven. And that's your questions.
Thanks, guys. Do you have a closing comment? I do. I have a couple things. Um, ironically, when I think back, it's been like three months that we've been talking with these guys, and the two things that stand out the most, um, it was one meeting, I said to them, I said, you know, elders, independently of your documents, who is Jesus to you? And this really stuck out because they both looked at each other. They, they always have a response. It's very just instant. They always have a response to everything, whether it's, you know, genuine, made up. But they both looked at each other, and then one of them just stared back at me and just nodded his head. And it was very clear to me that there was an impression there. But the other thing was they're very composed on the outside, you know, that's not an indication of what God's doing on the inside, certainly. It's nice to see what he's doing visibly on the outside. But when I would take them to Galatians 1.8 and read, have them read it in their own translation, because the evidence is in their own hands speaking against them, so they read from their own translation, they would get visibly frustrated when I would point out and just tell them, you, you guys are deceived. You know, and they would, the guy, one of them who would never speak one day went zero to 60 and said, I am, you know, never speaks. You know, would Satan give me a testimony? Would Satan give me peace? Would Satan, all these things. And of course he could give false peace. But those two things, who is Jesus to you? And then several times mentioning that they've been deceived. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that when we have dialogue with people, we always got to talk about two things, the nature of God and the nature of salvation. Another way to put it is, who is God and how do you get saved? And so I had a Mormon person tell me once who had, who had actually come out of the Mormon church, talk to them about your personal relationship with Jesus because they don't really know what that means. And so tell them you know, how you walk with the Lord and the love of Jesus and, and explain to them the grace. Try to explain grace to them. They don't, know, they don't understand what grace really means, just like a lot of Christians don't, right? the full implications of the gospel of grace. And I think uh, that's a way that you may kind of find an opening into something that we all long for to know God, right? Joe, closing comment? A uh, couple things. Don't be afraid to uh, dialogue with Mormons. You don't have to know the history of Mormonism. You don't have to know everything about Joseph Smith. You don't have to know everything about their rituals, etc. But you can dialogue with them. You can, ask the, you can ask them about what they believe. Ask them why they believe it. The one thing that I would um, recommend that you do know well is the concept of justification. And that, like Pastor Michael said, your, your testimony of how you became born again. They don't understand justification. We have been justified by the Lord of the universe. He had died on the cross for your sins and mine there's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. Our sins are get forgiven, past, present, and future. We've been declared righteous. We are justified. They don't get that. They live a, they live a life where they, that we would call their, their sanctification. They're trying to earn their way in all the things they're doing by being good Mormons. There's no security in that. Ask them, how do you know? How do you know that you will go to heaven? They don't know for sure. And imagine the endeavor, Joe, of trying to attain exaltation, which in essence, they're trying to attain godhood and they're not going to get there. And we should, we should feel compassion and Absolutely. sadness for a, an individual who's, who's on the proverbial wheel to nowhere. Lots of activity, you're going nowhere. In fact, when you stand before God, you're going to find out that he's cornered the market on deity. There's no God before him, no God after him. He is God. He says, I know of no one else. And so I do think that compassion, which is another word Absolutely. for love, should drive our evangelistic efforts. Absolutely. All right, well, we are at the end. I'm going to ask you guys, just stay up with me. Um, would you all stand? I'm going to just give us a closing benediction. Uh, I am grateful that you are here tonight. Uh, here's what we're doing with the packaging of these teachings. We, the next teaching that will come out is the one we did on the New Age Movement with Frank Sontag, which uh, will come out, I think, within the next couple of weeks, and we'll have that available to you. 
When you purchase these uh, products from us, it helps us with the radio ministry of Walk in Truth. So just remember that. And uh, we want you to have access to all those resources so that you can go back and listen. You know, sometimes you miss a lot when we're, we're rifling through questions. So you can pick up the teaching and uh, listen to it in your car or take it home and watch it, and it'll be available to you. We're grateful for all of you. Um, before I close, I, I'm not going to assume that all of you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I would just say to you, I think I know most of you tonight uh, personally, but, but if you don't know Jesus, if you have not received the free gift of salvation, it's paid in full. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But he gives it. This is the glory of Christianity. The price has been paid in full. And if you just reach out to him and just say, Lord, save me. He is faithful and mighty to save. And this is what we want to leave you with tonight. And those of you who may be watching, we want to leave you with an invitation to come to the true Christ because he, he alone has the power to save you. And if you come to him and you confess Jesus is Lord and you believe in your, God, your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Amen? The good news paid in full. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just ask him into your life. Just say, Lord, I want to know you. Thank you for that free gift of salvation. I'm going to receive it by faith right now. I'm going to ask you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. And he'll be faithful to save you. So right now, if you want to do that, just something like this. Would you all pray with me? Father, I ask you to grant me the gift of salvation in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead and I'm going to trust him as my Lord and my Savior. You may be here and you... Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe you need to come home tonight. But if you are a person who's not sure that you're born again, just make sure. Just cry out. Just say, Lord, save me. I, I want to know you. I thank you for your payment for my sin at the cross. And I trust in you and you alone for my salvation. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Lord God, for those who may be crying out, those who may listen to this later, after they've heard this teaching, I pray that they will run to the true Christ. And I thank you for this church fellowship, their passion for the truth, their passion for the gospel, their passion for apologetics. And those who are visiting from other fellowships, thank you for them coming out tonight. May we all go back. We are one church. And may we go back into the highways and byways and make a difference for your glory. We pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.